Welcome to the Two Lawyers Walk Into a Bar podcast. I'm Lee Bergstein. And I'm Cooper Knowlton. No, you're not. And we're here today with Damali Peterman. She's the founder and CEO of Damali Law. Thanks for joining us, Damali. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So we are drinking beer, Cooper and myself. Damali is having a Coca-Cola Classic, not diet, which is rare. I do not drink diet products at all. <laughs> Just the original. I like it. Always the original. Damali, I'm not sure if Lee told you this, but you are actually our first female guest that we've had on this podcast. Oh, it's about time. It I'm really very is. excited to be the pioneer tonight. First and last. <laughs> <laughs> so I was feeling, Cooper, I was feeling a little bit nostalgic today. Magic Hat uh, number nine was my favorite beer in college when I went to Syracuse. So I decided that I would drink Magic Hat number nine to kind of fit into my I feel nostalgic like that's a mindset. Pretty today. fancy, Go pretty orange. fancy beer to have in college, isn't it? I feel like most people drink Natty Light. Well, a six pack was six dollars. Is that then? So, all it is? Yeah. I'm a lot older than you, Cooper, so <laughs> All right, Lee. Okay. Um, so Damali, maybe <laughs> before we get going and before we sort of get into your background, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you're doing today and what you're up to? Absolutely. Today I am a mediator, a lawyer, and a trainer. And so I spend a lot of time helping clients uh, that range from individuals to companies with contract negotiation. I also mediate cases all over New York, and I teach conflict resolution. And I currently have very elite clients. I have government clients. They're also elite. Um, and I also volunteer uh, throughout New York City as a mediator. Was was this sort of the career that you kind of – where you are today, is this where you imagine being or is it sort of just happened by happenstance that this is sort of where you are? You know, when I was 14 years ago – I won't tell you how many decades ago that was uh, – when I was 14 years old rather, I took a entrepreneurship program. Uh, it was a program offered at George Washington University in the summertime and – that's when I decided I wanted to become an entrepreneur. So one could say that I took a circuitous route to get there. Um, I didn't know what I would do, meaning I didn't know what type of business I would have, but I knew that I wanted to own my own business. And so here I am. Do you enjoy, I, we are going to get into your background, but I, just out of my own personal curiosity, do you enjoy the business part of being, uh, of, of your job right now or the or the law part more? I love the law part. I love teaching. I love working with people. The business part, I, I guess I have those tools and those skills mm -hmm. because I've had other business roles throughout my career. I was an accountant. Um, but I would rather outsource the business part of it and focus on what I do best, which is... I ask primarily because Lee and I both have our own practices and we always comment that we like sort of the, the hustle of getting the business more than I think we either one of us likes being a lawyer. But, oh, is that what you mean? Well, yeah. I, don't, I don't like being a lawyer at all. <laughs> no, I think both of us, both of us enjoy being a lawyer, but I think both of us, both of us maybe, at least me personally, I don't want to put words in Lee's mouth, but I, I think I take more pleasure right now in terms of, uh, yeah, I think I take more pleasure just in getting the business than uh -huh. I do in sort of the, the nitty gritty legal stuff that I do. Okay. So you're referring to business development, yeah. not just sort of the business yeah, accounting, bill yeah, keeping yeah, side well, of it. Nobody, okay. nobody likes you oh, know, going the on worst. QuickBooks. And <laughs> <laughs> you're talking to a former accountant though, so choose your words. Right. I don't know, I don't know right. how. No, I, I, I love networking. I love socializing with people. I love uh, meeting new people. 
The legal part of it, I really enjoy. I enjoy drafting. I'm one of those weird folks that really likes to think about word selection, what it means, what impact it could have on a negotiation. Uh, I really enjoy that. So I think I'm probably a hybrid in the sense that I enjoy the business development and the actual practice of law. It's a very real politique answer. That's great. So, so at what point, at, at 14 years old, you are thinking about being a businesswoman. Right. Is any part of you also thinking about being a lawyer? So you should both know that I'm the eldest of seven children. I think oh. I was a born advocate. <laughs> it was seven of us against my parents, very sophisticated, smart people. And I often had to argue a case for one of my siblings or myself, typically for myself, because as the oldest, you're usually the trailblazer and the pioneer. And there was no one to advocate for me. And so I think... Yes, I always wanted to be a lawyer. I think people were surprised that I was not a litigator, but rather a corporate attorney because they said, oh, you love to argue. But I don't. I like to help people <laughs> and advocate for others, but I don't like to argue. Was there anyone in your family who practiced law? No, I'm the first lawyer. I'm currently the only lawyer. And we have a pretty big family. My father was in law enforcement. He was, a, he was in the military and then a police officer for over 25 years in Washington, D.C., so when you went to college, was was law school on your mind? Yes. So I majored in English and minored in Spanish. And there was often a joke that was said, I don't know where you both grew up, but I grew up in Washington, D.C. And uh, the joke was you can major in anything and go to law school. You can major in paper folding and go to law sure. school. And so I wanted to major in something, a, a subject that I really enjoyed. Mm -hmm. I really loved Shakespeare. I loved reading. I loved writing, which bodes well with the you know uh, profession as an attorney and drafting contracts. And so I knew I was going to law school after college. Even from before you started, like your first year, you knew that you were going to law school? That's a good question. Um, yes, but I also wanted to teach. And so there was a point in time where I could have minored in education. you want to be a professor? Education. Did you want to be a high I, school teacher? I wanted to be a high school teacher. And so I took all of the courses and the required student teaching to become a teacher or to get certified. Um, but there, I had to make a choice between studying abroad or finishing the semester at school to student teach. And I decided to study abroad. What made that decision? How did you do that? I had not traveled prior to that. And I really felt like the world was calling me. And so there were two great opportunities at school. In fact, there was a the, the, the program director for Denmark International Studies. It's a program based in Copenhagen at the University of Copenhagen, was in the International Studies program, uh, Program's co coordinator's office uh, the day that I went in to tell her I wanted to study abroad. And he immediately pitched to me and I said, Denmark, okay. <laughs> and so that's how it started. And then I worked backwards. So I, I selected that program and then I spoke to her and she also suggested because I was a Spanish minor, I had, I was minoring in Spanish. She suggested that I study in Mexico. And so I did. And was there anyone putting any pressure on you at this point to, you know, figure out your career and don't go abroad. You need to get this teaching license or, um, or was, was, you know, were your parents and your mentors just sort of allowing you to, 
you know, follow your passion and do what you wanted to do? At the latter, everyone was very supportive. I had always done very well academically. And so I, I think when that is the case, you usually have a lot of support. As long as you don't major in paper folding, everyone is very excited. I was a TV and film major, so that's basically paper folding. <laughs> it's watching a bunch I of like movies. how successful you are. Um, can be debated. Jury's, jury's still out <laughs> on that jury's one. still out on that one. Um, and so what point did you actually take the LSAT and study f- or and apply for law school? It was actually many years after graduating from college. So what did you do right after college? Right after college, I went back to D.C. I worked for a little bit while looking for jobs in randomly enough in in Cambodia and I was as I actually was hired to work at the Asia Pacific International School in Cambodia. I actually lived in Cambodia for two years. Really? Yeah, I was in the Peace um, Corps. It's nice to see you still in one piece. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um and the, it's, it, it's funny you said Peace Corps because the reason that I did not go into the Peace Corps oh I guess I skipped over something. After college I didn't go back to D.C., I went directly from Georgia to California. I thought you were going to say to Cambodia, <laughs> no. which would have been quite Well, after I started track. trying to learn Khmer, um, I'm very good with languages, uh, I realized that I already spoke <laughs> other languages mm-hmm. and why should, and I should look for jobs Yeah, you know, in those regions. Where it's, I, waste, it's a waste of brain power learning well, that language. I spent two years learning it, and I've, you know, I've used it maybe one time in the— <laughs> Seven years since. But it's still super impressive. And the fact that, you know, no landmines took any of your limbs is amazing. So, How did you hone in on Cambodia? I had always wanted to go to Southeast Asia. And I, at that point, had traveled to other parts of the world. And Southeast Asia was still quite a mystery to me. And I was looking for jobs with my uh, background. So I, I skipped over the, the part where I went to graduate school and mastered and received a master's in international policy studies with a focus on conflict resolution. So these things are all sort of coming together, mm-hmm. the teaching, learning English. <laughs> um, so you, you knew that you wanted to go to law school and that was obviously in your mind when you went to college. Yes. What motivated you to to pursue your master's before going to law school? Good question. I was studying Japanese in Monterey. This all goes back to studying different languages. This all goes back to loving different languages (laughs) and and having just a a natural proclivity towards learning them. They say I have an ear. Uh, My mom said when I used to have like bad dreams, I would speak in different languages. Really? How many languages do you speak? Fluently, uh, these days I would probably say three. Um, okay. With I speak enough of a few other languages to stay out of trouble. Uh huh. So I'm so impressed by anyone who can speak more than two. I feel like I, I grew up like obviously speaking English, and then studied Spanish in high school, and then when I learned Khmer, Khmer, I my, I felt like my entire Spanish side of my brain just transitioned to that. It's like I can speak like English or like other you know it's like I can't like I don't know how people like compartmentalize like three or four different languages I just think that's so how do you do that oh I forget other things (laughs) (laughs) um I I really love languages and there was a point in time where I thought it was really cool to just meet people and talk to them their native language and I love seeing their faces and I it's really key for cross-cultural communication to be able to communicate with someone in their native language. You don't have to have complete fluency, but just the fact that you took the time to learn a few words really can go a long way. I was going to say and we'll come back to this. 
I think there's a correlation between love for language, being good at language, and practicing law because they're just different ways. Law is a foreign language also, right? And you have to Absolutely. figure out a way to communicate it to people who don't understand it. Absolutely. That is, that is adorable. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's true. I mean... <laughs> It is true. <laughs> and it was adorable. Oh, it is. It is. Well, think about what, you know, when, you, when you're describing how, for instance, litigation proceeds. I think, I think it's yeah. completely true. It's just the way you said it. Or when you're explaining the difference between a limited liability and indemnity or, and, and a release. And so. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> right. It is definitely a language. It's going off the rails. <laughs> So we were talking about how you made the decision to go to, to um, get your master's. Yes. And I think you had mentioned that you had studied Japanese. Yes. How did that factor into the decision? I went to Monterey to study Japanese for a summer program. It was a summer intensive language program, and I fell in love with the community, the school, and they had a master's program for international policy studies. So it sort of fit in with things that I was interested in. They had a, an international negotiations course, commercial diplomacy, basically giving me the opportunity to use language, use my love for cross-cultural communication, and my interest in international politics and studies. Did you think when when you sort of knowing in the back of your mind that you would ultimately go back to law school, uh, did you think that you were going to go and be sort of an international you know, go the, go the international law route? That's exactly what I thought until I realized once I, my, my first uh, summer associate internship when I realized that law was just international. As long as I didn't plan to litigate, I would be all over the world negotiating. And so I was like, oh, I'm going to go and I'll become an international lawyer, whatever that means. I'll mm -hmm. be a commercial diplomat and I'll mm -hmm. argue and negotiate on behalf of the U.S. and for trade disputes. I had this whole plan. Interesting. Go argue at The Hague. Yes. I, actually, I studied in The Hague. So oh, wow. I did have an opportunity to sit at the Milosevic trial, among others. So, yeah. So tell us a little bit about the process of applying to law school. That So I think I went to law school probably a lot later. Uh, I think the traditional student, law student, as opposed to a business student, goes directly from undergrad to law school. Whereas you've heard that I took a more circuitous route, so I went to I studied abroad, and then I pursued a master's degree. Um, was it a two-year two master's? Two years. Yes, two years. And Some people say a circuitous route, but you really, like, you went around the world. <laughs> <laughs> Literally circled Literally the globe. Literally and figured it No, I – so when I graduated from, from graduate school, I then went to study in The Hague, and then I worked – in Costa Rica for a year and a half. What were you doing there? I was working at a nonprofit. It was a um, an ecotourism slash environmental conservation uh, slash community outreach and development center. It was amazing. It was in one of the at the time six most economically um, challenged regions of the of the eighty one regions or so of Costa Rica. And so I went there, instead of taking the job at Asia Pacific International School, I took a job in Costa Rica because gotcha. I spoke Spanish. Gotcha. <laughs> so it was, it was how many years was it between graduating from undergrad and starting in law school? Five. Five, okay. And did you apply your fourth year 
or was it, did you apply your second or third year and then defer or no, it was. No, I I applied the fourth year and there were a few months. So I came back to the U S I think in June and I started law or maybe May and I started law school in August and I knew I had been away for so long that I wanted to go to law school in DC because I had, I told you I'm the oldest of seven. So there are a lot of siblings and I wanted to be closer to the, the ones that still lived in DC. And so I applied to law school in DC. Where'd you go? To Howard university. And tell us about that decision. How did you end up there? I ended up there because it was a good fit for me. It was a great school, a lot of history, um, a lot of the pioneers for social change and justice. They were graduates of Howard University School of Law. Um, And so it was sort of an an easy decision for me. Um, Greats such as Thurgood Marshall, Charles Hamilton Houston, and others. Um, So it was it was easy to go home and go to an amazing school. What was, what were you like as a law student? How would you, <laughs> so, so I, I think there's a, a, there's a very different type of, you know, the, the law student who goes right from undergrad is a very different law yes. student than the law student who takes five years off. That's right. I think the law student who takes five years off usually approaches law school with much more of like a business mentality. And, you know, it, it's, it's just a different, uh, how would your, how would your law, your law school, your law school classmates, describe you? I think you are 100% correct, Cooper. There was a huge delta between me and the students who went directly from undergrad to law school. Number one, I was from Washington, D.C., so there was no allure or mystique. Mm -hmm. I didn't have to test the scene. I knew what the scene was. And so I was very focused. I had different study groups. I had a lot of friends. I was, I am also in a sorority. And so I had a lot of different groups of of friends, Um, but I was focused on studying. And so um, it was no surprise that after the first semester of law school, when it was time to look for jobs, I received a 1L offer at a law firm because I was just focused. You know, I knew what I wanted to do. I knew, I actually didn't know I was going to New York. So it's amazing to be sitting here with you guys today in New York. Um, It was, I guess, 2006 um, that I summered at Weill. And so I'm still amazed that I'm a New Yorker now. I plan to go back to California. I I have a lot of college students and even kids who have been accepted to law school who asked me whether they should take a year or two off, what would you say to kids out there listening who are trying to make the decision whether to go right from college to law school and taking some time off and working or traveling or some combination of both? I highly recommend it. I think that once you go to law school, especially in today's climate, there's a lot of pressure to work, especially if you've taken on any debt to attend law school. And so I think if there is an option of taking a year or two off for whatever reason, it's it's helpful because I know a lot of attorneys who went to law school who do not practice law anymore. Um, and either because, you know, due to burnout, due to lack of interest, due to, due to the fact that they didn't know what else to do after college. So they went to law school because you can major in anything and then go to law school. Um, and so I definitely would recommend a college student who has, who may not be certain if law is for them or who may want to see the world or do anything else before going to law school to do that. Because I feel like once you go to law school, the path is sort of laid out for you. Tamali, I I know that you have a family. Um, 
one of the things that I hear from females who are trying to make that decision is I have to go to law school now because I want to start a family one day. And if I go later, that will be a roadblock to doing that. Do you think that concern has some validity to it? Well, I think every concern, you know, has validity. Um, I think that women definitely have different things to think about when deciding whether or not to take time off. The phrase about a biological clock ticking is not just hocus pocus, it's actually true. And so if that is something that's important to uh, a young woman, then of course, like anything else, you would factor that into the decision. I think for me, I was, because I took five years off, I was older. I already knew what I wanted to do. And ironically enough, I met the man that I have been married to for 10 years now during my summer associate program at Weill in 2006. Oh, wow. And so I wasn't looking to, I wasn't thinking about that. It just all happened at the same time. And so I was married while I was in law school. So after my second year of law school, we were married. And then I was, and I was still in law school in Washington, D.C. And he was living in New York. He was practicing law in New York. And then I moved to New York. I, I contemplated um, transferring for my last year. And it just seemed like a silly idea because I loved where I was. I had made great friends and great relationships with the professors in the community. And so I stayed. So I spent the first year of my marriage in Washington, D.C. with my husband being in New York. Is your husband a transactional attorney or a litigator? He's a litigator. Okay. But I still win all the arguments. (laughs) I was going to ask because my wife is a prosecutor. And I also lose all of the arguments, <laughs> dramatic fashion, every single time. When you when you said you said you've said multiple times when you were a one L uh, in law school, you you sort of knew exactly what you wanted. Was that a job at a big law firm? Was that sort of the the main goal? Yes. And at, and at what point did that happen? Did that happen? You know, did you decide Im- immediately once you were at law school you wanted to go the big firm route, or did that sort of when, when did that transition happen from sort of potentially wanting to work in The Hague to wanting to work in corporate America? So this is a great story. I was sitting in property class and- You uh, went to property? I did. I wow. love property. My Ugh. property professor was no amazing. I shouldn't say that as like half my practice is real estate. And so I was sitting in property class <clears throat> and a woman who was a year ahead of me was studying in Japan. She was at the same law school with me. And she sent an email saying, there's an amazing firm that's coming. They come every uh, winter to host uh, mock interviews. And the director of recruiting is a woman who is brilliant and is a graduate of our law school. And so I want to make sure that we get a good turnout for the mock interviews. Can you go? And I was like, sure, I'll go. Um, Here's my resume. Can you take a look at it? So I sent it over to her. She's in Japan. I'm in Washington, D.C. She sent my resume without telling me to while and the director of recruiting was like wow like we would love for you to interview with us when we have the mock interviews and so it kind of all came together because remember I thought I was going to to California so when you know you're one L year you sign up for Barbary and you have to put down the jurisdiction and I put down California because I had this vision of being a lawyer in L.A. You know, the L.A. look, you know, going to work out, convertible car, yeah. killing it. <laughs> and look at me. I'm in New York where it gets super cold. <laughs> um, but I love it and I wouldn't change anything about it, about the decision. What was what was that first summer like? Did you did you know 
uh, once you, you know, working there for a couple months, did you think, did it confirm to you that this is what you wanted to do? Absolutely. I loved working at Weil. It was a great experience. I had mentors, sponsors. I had really good friends. I think because I was older too, I didn't have that, you know, that sort of uh, naivete or that sort of like, I knew who I was and I knew what I wanted and I knew how to get there and to accomplish it. And so that made me seem more like a peer, I think, as opposed to um, a student. And that really took me far. I have a lot of great relationships to this day from Weil. Did you? I, I have a couple friends who work at Weil now, and they I feel like they work harder than almost anyone at any <laughs> firm. And let me tell you, that hard work paid off because when I went in-house, I had an amazing experience. I was prepared for everything. And now having my own practice, it was all the things that I learned at Weil and at Deloitte that prepared me to go out on my own. And so it paid off. And I had the confidence to go up against big companies all the time and know that right is right, wrong, wrong is wrong. And, you know, to have sort of <laughs> sort of the, 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 the people behind you that aren't really there, but they really are there because they're the ones that are pushing you forward saying you've got this. Sure. Did you so so you you did your one L summer internship? Did you get an offer, and then did did that did that change the way you sort of approached your next two years? Did you relax a little bit and take more classes just for fun, or were you still sort of driven? I was still driven. Um, I did get an offer. Um, I spent part of my summer, the first the one L summer in New York and in London, and then I t- I spent my second summer part of it in New York and in Shanghai. And then I was done for the rest of the summer, the second, the two all summer. And I also got married that summer. In the third year, still same, same deal. Third year in law school, you were, you were focused and. I don't know how to be any other way, Cooper. I'm sorry. (laughs) We're just looking for some I'm very ambitious. I got my, I got my two L offer and I just coasted my third year. <laughs> and you haven't stopped coasting ever since. Still, still no. coasting. I wake up <clears> at <throat> five in the morning. I go to sleep very late every night. I, I don't know. I'm, I don't know how to be anything but driven. Mm, I hate you so much right now. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us a little bit about what your first couple years at Wild were like. They're very busy. So I don't know if you remember, I don't know. Lehman's bankruptcy, but that happened while we were in orientation. And so the the need the, the, the whole state of the world had changed. And so we were at the firm that was filing bankruptcies for all the major companies, um, Lehman and others. And so it was very different because I went there to do M&A, but there was more restructuring going on than and reorganizations um, than traditional mergers and acquisitions. And so that meant that I spent a lot of time doing that, being, you know, sort of a bankruptcy attorney in the sense, helping out in different departments and showing the flexibility and willingness to do that, which I think went a long way um, when the market was, you know, right side up again. And there were a lot of deals. I was usually asked to be on those deals. So we're, we're, were people let go? Were people that you started with let go during the course of the time? Or what, there was more, like it sounds like there was more work at your firm versus other bigger firms. You hear stories about people being let go during that time. Right. And fa- no, while I didn't let people go at that time, um, they a few years later, um, I think in 2013, around June 2013, they reorganized a bit. And so at that, that time, people were let go. 
but not 2008, 2009. And while you're at Weill, do you always have the end goal in-house counsel? Is that what you were looking to do down the line? No, actually, I loved working at Weill, and I probably would still be working there right now had I not received a call uh, from Deloitte, and they had an amazing offer, and so I thought it would be silly to not listen, and I listened, and it sounded amazing, and so I accepted the offer. Curious if you have any comments about oh, sorry, um, about being a black woman in big law. I'm sort of, you know, you hear a lot of stats about, you know, women being very underrepresented on the partnership track, as well as people of color. I think that it's not limited to big law. That the profession, the profession, the legal profession, um, could definitely use more diversity across the board. I think if you think about it like that, and then sort of hone in on different categories, right? So you have public sector practitioners, you have private, and then you have you know all others. Let's call them others for now. And so my experience in big law. As you both know, big law to me is a meritocracy, but sometimes because if, if sometimes if there aren't people who look like you, people assume that those people don't help people who don't have the same background or the same interests. But that wasn't my experience, so I can only speak to my experience. My experience at WOW was that people were always willing to support me, to advocate for me. Um, I worked on some amazing deals. I received a lot of opportunities. I have mentors and I have sponsors, people that to this day I can call and say, I'm dealing with this type of issue. What do you think? Uh, even when I was, I made the decision to go to Deloitte, I reached out to two partners and they were like, we don't want to see you go, but we support you. And they were the ones who um, gave the recommendations to Deloitte. And so I, I'm not trying to dance around your question. No, I can totally only speak fair. to my experience. That being said, it's, it's true. I mean, there isn't a lot of representation of not just women of color, but women uh, is there. I sit on the, uh, I'm a member of the New York City Bar Association, and I sit on the Women in the Legal Profession Committee. And so there are tons of statistics that you can find on, on the website and that, uh, and we have panels and we have women come in, men come in, we, you know, we talk about this specific topic, we talk about other gender inequities, we talk about pay, you know, gaps. Um, and the reason that we're still having these conversations um, is because these things are still going on. So clearly, uh, big law could use a makeover. Not just for women, um, I think for um, the LGBTQ, I may have said that wrong, but for the, you know other communities as well. What, what are some of the big ideas out there since you're involved in this process in, in terms of getting this makeover done or accelerating the, the course of the makeover? It's a great question. Um, thinking about allies – I think that sometimes people think that it has there has to be a woman at the top to bring other women up, but that's not always the case. And so I think changing the perspective of the issue is not an it's not a it's not a big law issue, societal issue. It's not a women's issue. It's a productivity issue. Um, I think that some women you talked about earlier, um, Lee, you said that some women are thinking about, you know wanting to have more than just a, a work uh, to, wanting to have more than just work 
Right. And so they may not want to take time off after college to go directly to law school because they're on a path of having a little bit more than that, perhaps yeah. a family. Um, when you do decide to have a family, some people may feel, some women may feel, and some men may feel that that takes you off of the path. So if you're thinking about becoming a partner, is that going to, will it take you twice as long now because you have to take time off to have a baby? Um, are you going to leave? You know, is it more, are women more likely to leave? If so, why? So some of the discourse around these topics um, contemplate ways to keep, to retain women after they have children, for example. Um, they talk about ways to find more sponsorships for women, not just mentors, but people who actually advocate for women. And we also discuss um, holding companies, firms accountable by suggesting that the clients request diversity on their matters, um, making sure that the clients say, okay, is there, if there's not a partner of color or a minority, is there a senior associate that you can put on this? We really, it's between you and another firm, and this is what we want to see. We want a diverse team. And diversity isn't just, you know, race or, you know, religion. It's, there's so many things that go into that. And so there are a lot of, there are a lot of conversations being had right now with respect to, finding ways to make the practice, for lack of a better word, more reflective of the people that are in law school. So did you go from, and then you left while you went to Deloitte. Yes. That was a great then, segue, by the way, Cooper. That was. <laughs> and then from Deloitte, you went to. You, My own practice. You started your own practice. Yes. And how long have you had your own practice? Officially since. February 20, or the end of February of this year. We did not get invited to the launch party, which I heard was a fabulous time. It was extraordinary. Wow. I'm positive wow. I did not know you at that time, <laughs> Lee, but you know, you weren't invited to my birthday party. <laughs> didn't know you then. <laughs> you weren't invited to my wedding. I didn't know you then. <laughs> so I'm still hurt. Sorry. Looking looking back on your career, are there any regrets that you have or anything that you think, thinking back, that you would have done differently? You know, it's funny. I think that everything happens for a reason. That sounds like really hokey, but I, I do believe that. I think that if I if this if this is a regret, I wish I'd started my practice sooner. Um, that being said, I needed to have experienced everything that I did leading up to February in order to be successful. And I feel like, not that I feel like, I've been very successful. I don't market. I don't advertise. Everyone has come to me um, from a referral. And that's an extraordinary feeling. I know both of you worked for law firms before and you're familiar with, you know, someone assigns you something and you do it. Whereas now I decide what I do on a daily basis, which is a very powerful position to be in. Um, and so I regret that I didn't do it sooner, but I'm happy that I'm here now. 
Is there any advice that you would give to a maybe a law student or someone who's early on in their career who's think who thinks that you know they'd like to have a career like yours and ultimately have their own practice? And could you give that advice in Japanese, please? <laughs> could, you give it, could you give it to me? And <laughs> <laughs> Just speak directly, directly to me. Just look him in the eyes and tell me how I can grow my business and be more successful <laughs> and be more like you. <laughs> you know what's funny? <laughs> um, the, I guess the first bit of advice would be to just constantly learn. Everywhere I go, I ask questions. Everywhere, every time I meet someone, I want to know about them. And it's sort of, it seems very simple, but I think it's we're so wired to focus on what's going on in our lives that sometimes we miss opportunities to get to know someone and or to learn something from someone else. And I feel like my network, even though it's extremely broad and it crosses over different bodies of water. Um, a lot of it was just organically grown by talking to people and just genuinely wanting to get to know them. This goes back to the cross-cultural communication. And so always be in a position of, of trying to learn, always ask questions. Um, I don't, I, I know a lot of people who have been successful that graduated from law school and hung their shingle. For me, I don't think that I could have done that because, or I, I think for me, it, it would have been more challenging for me to find the success. To put it another way, I think that for me, all the experiences that I've had so far have allowed me to enter this from a place of understanding. And that's not to say that I don't open you know, the door sometimes and I'm like, okay, <laughs> how did I get here? Um, but it's to say that I know what to do. You know, when things arise, I have a community that I can tap into if there's something that I don't know. I know amazing criminal defense lawyer that I can call. And so, you know, there the community is really important. The other bit of advice that I would give is to always ask for what you want. I think a lot of people fear being told no or fear that a question may seem may make them seem incompetent or silly or what have you um, or because the question had not been has not been asked before then they don't ask and so to to give you an example when I had my first son um, there were really only two options that were available to women returning from maternity leave full-time or part-time period Mm -hmm. um, or I guess the third option of just not going back, right? And for me, none of those options, well, the, in the way, in the form that they were, worked for me because I wanted to be full-time, but I just wanted to work from home twice a week. I lived a few blocks from the firm. I had a full-time, I had full-time help, and I had an office set up, so I didn't understand why I had to, compromise, you know, my salary and, you know, if you say my career path, if that's a thing, um, without just asking the question. So can I come back? I'm want to be I want to be full time, but I like to work from home twice a week. And I asked that question and they said yes. It had not been done before in twenty twelve. <laughs> and the same thing when I worked at Deloitte and I had my second child. Uh, and Deloitte was um, 
very advanced in the sense that everything was set up for telecommuting. And so you could literally be anywhere and have access to your phone and everything um, just as long as you had internet connection. And so I asked the same question and they said, of course. And so I feel like sometimes people sort of abandon, you know, their dreams. That sounds very strong, but they sort of say, oh, well, they won't, I won't be allowed to do X, so I won't try, as opposed to just asking for what you want. And so I always advise people to just ask. The worst thing that could happen is that they can say no. The best thing that could happen is they could say yes and, right? And so, um, and then my final bit of advice would be to not have any regrets because the reason, you didn't ask this question, but I'll, I'll share. The reason that I have my own practice is because I felt like I was doing a lot, but not enough for me and not enough for my family in the sense that I wanted to leave a legacy and I wanted to control what that legacy looked like. And during the election and after the election, I saw a need for conflict resolvers. And as you've heard, I had this background in conflict resolution, which I had been using daily in my career, which made me a very effective negotiator and being able to communicate in different languages, even if those languages uh, were off the beaten path sometimes. Um, And so time and opportunity came together where I saw an opening for me to finally become an entrepreneur. And so I gave notice. I started looking for office space. Um, I started thinking of a name. I worked on a website. And everything came together. People supported me. Every single person that I spoke to about this vision that I had gave me advice. A lot of them were women. A lot of women said, this is what you need, do this, you need this, you know, professional liability insurance carrier, you need X, Y, and Z, I've tried this, you don't have to waste your time. And so I I really did rely on my network. I did a lot of research, I thought about it, and I said, "This is the time is now. And of course, I was able to do that because I'm married to an attorney um, who's extremely supportive. And I have a village that's helping me so that I can, you know, it sounds really like kumbaya, but accomplish my dreams. And so have no regrets. I felt like I would have regretted not starting my own company and wondering what if, what if I, what if I had the opportunity to resolve conflicts on my terms, not based on a guideline that was created several decades ago that may not necessarily be the best approach. And so that's what I do on a daily basis. I help people resolve their issues. I show them ways to um, have lasting change by giving them the tools that they need. And then I help them with their legal services too. It's It's like the best situation to be in where you feel like you're constantly helping and adding value. And so have no regrets. If there's something you want to do, even if it's paper folding, then you should do it. That's a great callback. That's an awesome vision for young attorneys and even attorneys who are kind of foundering about and don't really know what they want to do next. I have one question, though. There's been conflict and tension since the election. I didn't didn't realize. (laughs) Today, today, um, we had primaries in New York City. 
Um, and I love New York City, just walking down the street past any school where the primaries are being held and just overhearing bits of conversation. Um, you know, there's always tension during a, trans, a presidential transition, period. So This has been very, very traditional transition period. <laughs> You're talking to a neutral person. Remember, I'm a mediator. So. <laughs> All right. Well, I think that's a great place to wrap this up. But thank you so much for your time. This was a great conversation. It's awesome. And thank hopefully you. I won't be the last woman on your show. You 100% will not be. Thank <laughs> you so much. Thanks for <laughs> having me. 